Snow and Sun by Marie Brennan. Read by Jeannie Calvar. On a day like this, doing laundry was almost a pleasure rather than a chore. The wet clothes were heavy and tiresome to beat with the washing paddle, but with summer's warmth lying thick in the sheltered valley, the coolness of the water was refreshing. Hige was tireless in wielding the paddle, his ropey arms working without pause. He kept time with the familiar chant, Shoshinikie, Shoshinikie. Devotion to the little teacher. Yuki had once asked the monk whether he did so to show that Shinsei, the little teacher, was in his thoughts at all times. After all, some members of the Perfect Land sect said you must chant the Kie at every possible waking moment if you wanted to achieve salvation. Hige had merely laughed. No, child, he said. The rhythm just helps me keep these old arms moving when they get tired. She liked Hige. He did his part around this hidden village, just like anyone else, but with less complaint than most. Two little girls ran down one of the hard-beaten trails between the houses, laughing and shouting as they chased their runaway ball. Even here, the sight was much rarer than it should be. Some people in the village said the scarcity of children was another sign of Tengoku's displeasure, the judgment of the celestial heavens against the failings of samurai. But if that were true, why did peasants also suffer a decline? And why were the reduced births confined to dragon lands rather than spreading across the entire empire? Samurai here were no worse than anywhere else. Yuki drew breath to ask Hige. He had proven himself willing, even eager, to discuss theological matters with her, since she arrived in the village some months earlier. But before the question could pass her lips, hoofbeats interrupted her. Hige stopped the movement of the paddle, one hand rising to shade his eyes. Riders were entering the valley, people Yuki had never seen before, armored and armed. The woman at their head wore a daisho at her hip. Yuki shrank back against the laundry barrel, but Hige smiled reassuringly at her. They are friends, child. If they had not been, our guards would have warned us before they got this far. Despite his words, she kept her chin ducked low as the newcomers came into the central green, scattering a flock of chickens into a squawking, indignant cloud. The woman with two swords was clearly a ronin. Her armor was well cared for, but bore no clan mon. The others with her were a motley bunch, another monk, this one also a woman, two men with the well-fed look of rich merchants, and several burly peasants bearing spears. All of them, from the ronin down to the merchants, rode sturdy mountain ponies, whose sure-footed gait could navigate even the roughest terrain of these northern peaks. The ronin cast her gaze around until she spotted Hige. Then she tossed her reins to one of the merchants and strode directly to the old monk, dropping to one knee and clasping her hand over the opposite fist in salute. Sensei, we have much to report. Hige set down his paddle 
and raised her to her feet with gentle hands. Sato, how many times must I tell you? There is no need to kneel. We are all equal in the eyes of the little teacher. So this was Sato. Yuki had heard the name, but never seen her. She had been gone from the valley since the beginning of winter. On what errand, no one seemed to know. Hige must have, of course. But Yuki had not been presumptuous enough to pry. The leader of the perfect land might involve himself in the daily life of the village to a remarkable extent. But that did not mean his followers had the right to know everything he did. He still deserved deference, though, for his wisdom, if not for any inborn status. Yuki said hesitantly, Sensei, I can finish this myself if you are needed elsewhere. Her words made Sato twitch with impatient agreement, but Hige smiled. No, that's all right. Do not leave the rice half-boiled, that war half-won. So said Shinsei, and I'm sure he meant that to include laundry half-washed, too. Sato, will you aid us? With three pairs of hands, it will go half again as quickly. After the laundry had been hung to dry, Hige vanished with Sato, leaving Yuki to sweep out the steep-roofed farmhouse she shared with eight other members of the perfect land. People in the Empire harbored such absurd notions about the sect and the people who followed it, imagining every kind of wild thing, that they spent all but one waking hour each day mindlessly chanting the Kie, that every member was required to surrender all personal names and property, that they engaged in heretical rituals ranging from drunken frenzied dances to forbidden blood sacrifice. The truth was far more mundane. As the old adage went, chop wood, carry water. Yuki had done a lot of wood chopping and water carrying since she came to the village. A shadow eclipsed the bright doorway. She couldn't see the man's face, silhouetted as it was, but she knew that shape. If Hige-sensei was the heart of the village, this man was its strong right arm. Ichiro-senpai. He carried himself with the martial grace of a ronin, and bore none of the marks of poor nutrition or frequent injury that characterize many peasants. But unlike Sato, he wore no swords at his hip. Ichiro said, Come to the green. You can finish sweeping later. She expected Hige to be waiting there on the trampled grass that struggled to survive underneath so many feet. Perhaps he was going to make some announcement of whatever news Sato had brought. But when Yuki arrived, she saw neither Hige nor Sato, just one of the men she had mentally labeled as a merchant. Ichiro joined the man and said, They're all here, Kambesan. Yuki kept her eyes on the merchant. She'd observed enough already without having to cast her gaze around. Every single person there, herself included, was a relative newcomer to the village. She waited with her hands folded demurely as the merchant called the first of them forward. Momoe, a woman from Phoenix Lands who had fled all the way across the mountains after her family had been executed for heresy. The merchant drew her aside and spoke to her in a low voice for quite some time before nodding to Ichiro and calling the next person. Like many others waiting, Yuki began to murmur the kie. It had a pleasant, meditative quality to it, even if she didn't believe for one instant that it had the power to save someone from the cycle of rebirth. 
She let the rhythm of the chant wash that thought away. Yuki believed in the kie. Yuki was devoted to the little teacher, heart and soul. She knew beyond a doubt that he would save her, whisk her away after death to the perfect land where he dwelt, there to achieve enlightenment without the suffering of life here in the mortal realm. Yuki was snow, cold as ice inside. There was a painful irony to her name, after seeing her fellow villagers in Masado Mura freeze to death in the harsh nights of this past winter, dying because the local daimyo had taken too much of their firewood for his own use. She'd wondered if it wouldn't be better for her to freeze as well, to escape this life in the hope that the next one would be better. Instead, she'd come north to this hidden village, to where Hope lived. Four people had passed through the questioning without incident. The fifth, Seijin, was a disgraced fortunist monk, and for him the merchant Kambe shook his head. Ichiro pulled Seijin aside. What is it? The monk asked, bewildered. Ichiro said, Only those who are truly pure of faith can be permitted to stay here, so close to Higesensei. Your faith is flawed, just as it was in your days worshipping the spirits called fortunes. But, no, I am devoted to the little teacher, to Higesensei. You cannot send me away. His protests did no good. Several other men dragged him off, not too roughly, but not giving him much chance to resist either. No one spoke up on his behalf. Even the most foolish or naive could see what was going on here. The samurai of Rokugan feared their sect because of the challenge it posed to the celestial order, and while they might speak of honor, many of them would not hesitate to send spies into the mountains to infiltrate and ultimately bring down the ones they called heretics. The job of this merchant was to find any such people and root them out. And if the occasional believer might be cast forth as a result, well, that was a small price to pay for safety. If Seijin's faith was true, Shinsei would reward him for it after death. Yuki! She came forward obediently, without hesitation. Yuki had nothing to hide. Kambe consulted a scroll. Her gaze drifted across it. An illiterate peasant woman had no reason to look away. The handwriting was Ichiro's. Masato Mura, he said. Yes. It was terrible what happened there. I heard that less than half the village survived. A little more than half, Senpei. She corrected him softly. More would have died, but our headman let us break down the huts of the families who were gone and use those for fuel. You had a husband? She pressed her lips together bit down until they ached. Tadeo. He didn't freeze, though. The merchant glanced up. What happened to him? He went mad, she said, emotionlessly. He attacked the samurai who came to tally the dead. They cut him down, and when I ran forward, they stabbed me, too. His gaze sharpened. Let me see. The spear wound that gashed her side was several months old reduced now to an ugly scar. They had good healers here in the village. Nothing compared to the prayers of Shigenja, of course, but knowledgeable with herbs and charms. Kambe prodded at it with his thumb, and she recoiled, drying her kimono closed once more. I beg your pardon, Senpei. He eyed her for a moment, 
but not with the speculative gaze of a man thinking about sex. Finally, he nodded to Ichiro and called the next name. She did not smile as she went back to her sweeping. Her face might be bare, but she was never without a mask. The village lay quiet under the cloak of night, and the time had come to change one mask for another. Shoshuro Miyako slipped noiselessly from the shared farmhouse. Yuki was never far away. She still wore simple peasant clothing, and could don that persona again at an instant's notice. But it would weaken her masquerade to think of herself in those terms, while taking actions that faithful Yuki would never dream of. Better to keep the two separate, the devout follower of the perfect land's teachings, and the scorpion shinobi sent to investigate that heresy. Lights burned within the building that had once been the village's fortunest shrine. From everything she had seen and heard, Hige was a sweet and gentle man, but he did not tolerate worship of the fortunes or even the ancestors among his followers. Only Shinsei mattered, and the sutra which promised that those who called on him with a sincere heart would pass after death into Tengoku, where they could achieve enlightenment under the little teacher's own guidance. Compared to that, all else was mere distraction. Here in Dragonlands, shrines were often built in the ancient style, raised off the ground like granaries in an effort to protect the contents from rats, which, ironically, made it easy for Miyako to creep beneath the platform. She suppressed a wince as her side complained. It might be blasphemous to say the kami owed her anything, but when she was done with this mission she would ask for a shigenja to tend to her. If her lord balked, she would remind him that an ugly scar was an identifying mark, one a shinobi could ill afford. Voices came through the planks above her. Hige, Ichiro, Sato, and the merchant Kambei, who had sifted the newcomers for traitors. A few others, some she had come to know during her time in the village, others probably among those who arrived with Sato. Kambei was speaking as she settled into position, near to where a knot had fallen from one of the planks. A thin spear of light came through the hole. I assume that too, Higesensei, but no, as near as we can tell, they aren't mobilizing against us. Then who? the sect's leader asked. I fear that might be a misdirection. It is only by Shinsei's blessing that we've avoided their fury for this long. We all know it must come eventually. Sato answered him. All signs point to the clan's armies marching south. Miyako's eyes widened. In dragon idiom, south wasn't just a direction. It meant out of their own clan's lands. Could the reclusive dragon truly be planning military action elsewhere in the Empire? If so, it cast into shade everything else she'd discovered so far, from the name and background of the sex leader to the fact that the dragon clan's birth rate had declined to alarming levels. In one strike, it paid for everything. Her arduous journey from Scorpion Lands, the spear she'd thrust into her own side, the months spent doing chores like a peasant— after centuries of near-total isolation and quiet, the dragon were taking action, but not against the heretics in their mountains, which meant that something else was going on. Meanwhile, 
the followers of the perfect land had a breathtaking opportunity to strike. The conversation above her continued, speculating about purpose, timing, whether this movement was on the orders of the enigmatic Dragon Clan champion. Then Sato said something that drew Miyako's attention like an arrow to a target. Ichiro, are you ready for this? Or do you still feel loyalty toward the man you once called father? Miyako would have stabbed a spear into herself again if it meant being able to see Ichiro's face in that moment. But pressing her eye to the knothole above, like some kind of inquisitive yokai, would have been far too dangerous. She closed her eyes instead, focusing all of her attention on his voice. He didn't answer immediately. When he spoke at last, his words held the tension not of deception or uncertainty, but of anger barely held in check. That man is a liar and a hypocrite. He claims that by opposing this sect, he upholds the celestial order. All the while, he undermines that same order. How could I feel any loyalty to a man who lied to me my entire life? Miyako's body remained still, but her thoughts raced. Who was the father they spoke of? Ichiro carried himself like a man trained for war. She'd assumed he was ronin-born, or Clambushi cast out for some disgrace. He didn't carry the daisho that marked a samurai's rank, but given the philosophy of the perfect land, that was understandable. But it sounded like he had chosen to leave, and also like his father was no mere jizamurai, but someone of importance. Unfortunately, the name Ichiro meant only first son, and was the kind of name any boy might bear before his genpuku. It told her nothing. She curled her hands tight, praying to any fortune whose power might still inhabit the shrine above that someone would say more. And perhaps those spirits had not fled after all, for Sato spoke again. If you encounter Miramoto Masashige on the battlefield, will you be able to raise your sword against him? Yes! Ichiro's response came quick and fierce, and I will show him how well I have learned the lessons he taught me. Miyako remained where she was, motionless, barely breathing, as the meeting concluded and the leaders of the perfect land sect dispersed. She ought to return to her own hut before anyone woke and noticed Yuki's absence, but her heart was pounding so loudly she half feared that alone might disturb them. Miramoto Masashige's lost son. The scorpion knew he had vanished three years ago, but not why or where. True to form, the dragon had kept the secret from slipping out, that Miramoto Ichiro had gone to join the followers of the perfect land, who condemned samurai for failing in their duty to heaven. She wasn't due to send a report to Yogo Hirue for another five days. Was it worth risking her cover to get word of this out early? No. She had to stay disciplined, especially with Kambe watching for traitors. Wait maintain her masquerade, and see what else she might learn. By the accusation of his own son, the Miramoto Daimyo was a liar, undermining the celestial order even while he fought the spread of the perfect land. It held fascinating possibility. What her superiors would do with that information, she didn't know. But if Higesensei's teachings were correct, and this was the age of declining virtue, then the samurai of the dragon clan might deserve what was coming to them. Her lip curled in annoyance. That was Yuki's thought, not Miyako's, 
and she shouldn't be slipping through unbidden. She had no interest in the theological questions that so obsessed the phoenix and the dragon. Her duty was clear, and right now, her duty was to be a peasant. With a silent, wistful prayer that it might change soon, Miyako left the space beneath the shrine and returned to Yuki's life. Thank you.